You're listening to the Hippie Haven podcast, where we have honest conversations about how easy and sometimes how hard it can be to save the planet and why it's so important. If this is your first time listening, welcome. My name's Callie. I'm a zero waste activist and consultant, the founder of Bestowed Essentials, my line of ethical and eco-friendly lifestyle products, and I travel full-time around the United States in my camper van. Hence my blog name, ahippieinavan.com, which is where you can go to learn more about me, this podcast, and all the work I do. My mission is to inspire you to take action, because the planet needs our help now more than ever, and I truly believe that together, we can make a difference. Hey friends, so life has been pretty hectic, and the podcast schedule got thrown through a loop for a good while there. I'm so sorry about that. I hope that you're following me over on Instagram. I'm at a hippie in a van. That is a great way to get updates on what I'm up to, all of the million different projects I'm currently working on. So this is a pretty long episode to make up for the ones I missed. If you want to skip this little bit of what's been going on in my life, just fast forward, I don't know, three or four minutes to get straight to the interview or just hang tight to get caught up with me first. I was down in Georgia, the U.S. state, from like June to just recently, originally working with a fair trade boutique as they were opening their second location. Then I started volunteering on the Stacey Abrams for Governor campaign, which ended up consuming almost all of my time. It was such an eye-opening experience, and it definitely sparked a huge interest in future political work whether that's on more campaigns or maybe even someday running myself, who knows yet. Unfortunately, Stacy did not get elected governor, which was quite heartbreaking. But she, Andrew Gillum, and Beto O'Rourke definitely proved that the South has become pretty purple, and it gave me a lot of hope for 2020. And then I left Georgia two weeks ago and drove up to South Dakota, which is where I will be settling in for the next six months or so over this cold winter. I am setting up a production studio for my business, Bestowed Essentials, and it wasn't in my plans for another year or two, actually, but the only viable production studio space that I liked had a front room that is actually perfect for a small retail area, so I guess I'm opening a new store, too. Um, My vision for it is being a community place where we will host zero waste events, clothing swaps, DIY workshops, of course selling my own handmade line of ethical and eco-friendly home goods, as well as a few other beloved brands, and BYOC, that's bring your own container refill options for people interested in making their own zero waste beauty products. I am also working on expanding my line to include dish soap, solid body scrub bars, laundry stain sticks, candle wax candles, and more. I have been running Bestowed Essentials for almost exactly two years now. It started with just soaps when I was still active duty Navy with an Etsy shop and doing the local farmer's market. And then for the last year, I was operating the business from my van while traveling all over the country. Um, But it has definitely outgrown that, which is why I'm here doing this so that business can continue to expand. I will be looking for um, somebody to hire soon to take over the production and shipping for me so that I can resume traveling in mid-2019. If you know anybody in the Rapid City, South Dakota area who'd be a good fit for my company, definitely let me know. And as always, if you're interested in supporting my business and by extension me, visit bestowedessentials.com. Anyway, now that I'm here and getting everything organized, I can find back to publishing podcast content every Wednesday. So without further ado, let's get into today's interview. 
Real quick, though, um, there is a wee bit of swearing in this episode. So if you have kids around, put in your headphones or come back to listen once they've gone to bed. My guest today is the lovely Ashley Piper, author of my new favorite book, Give a Shit, Do Good, Live Better, Save the Planet. Ashley is a former political strategist who's channeled her passion for animals and ecological preservation into a career as an eco-lifestyle expert. She is a journalist, TV and media personality, and consultant whose aim is to find and communicate the latest and greatest in the realm of sustainable living. We are chatting all about her book, how to implement small eco-actions in your home no matter what your lifestyle. We also talk about minimalism, recycling, composting, reducing junk mail, how to ethically dispose of your mattress, and so much more. The show notes for this episode, which include links to her book and social media, as well as all of the companies and resources we mention, plus, of course, a full transcript if you prefer that, are available on my website at www.ahippieinavan.com forward slash 015. So how did a girl from Texas turn into an eco-activist? Through a lot of time and varied experiences, for sure. Um, I think I mentioned in the book, I certainly wasn't one of these folks who was raised vegetarian or vegan. I didn't, I, my parents are great, but I didn't grow up in a household that necessarily stressed or was even attuned to uh, environmental protection. So uh, it's it's been a journey kind of a personal self-discovery and through various work experiences I've had and relationships and life experiences, um, it became something I was really, really passionate about and then just started developing on my own. And I actually think that's been quite nice. I feel almost a little bit self-made in my um, in my interest in being more eco-friendly. And what was your journey into vegetarianism and veganism? Oh, girl, I was so conflicted. So I, um, and I kind of outlined this a little bit in the book, but I, you know, grew up in Texas. My mom was really into rescuing animals, like companion animals. Um, so we had quite a few, we never like bought from a breeder or pet shop or anything like that. And we always were um, taking in strays and had kind of a motley crew of various pets growing up, which was a really great experience. So from her, I learned a lot of compassion for animals. Um, but at the same time, you know, we were a household that ate meat, uh, very Texas led as far as our diets went. And even as I got older and I, you know, got attuned to like cruelty free and the fact that animal vivisection was still happening, um, and I got interested in using entirely cruelty-free products. Even after that, um, I still was eating meat. And even in my kind of young and early adulthood, even after that, I was like going to fur protests in, in Boston. But then right after I'd go to a fur protest, I'd go and like have a burger. So I had quite a bit of like natural disconnect, I would say. I think we're all kind of, uh, we grow up with this disconnect from what we eat and that what we're eating if we are eating meat and animal products actually comes from an animal just because in the stores those products don't look like an animal at all um so it wasn't until about 10 years ago when i adopted my dog who i think is just this magically emotive uh sensitive kind creature so bright so um caring that i just began to see every i began to see her in every single animal and that's really was the turning point for me 
And so I made a New Year's resolution to become vegetarian. And that was actually a pretty easy experience with just a handful of mess ups. Um, and then after that, I, I made I resolved to be vegan. And I actually found that transition to be pretty simple as well. And what was your original inspiration for writing your own book? So I had been I've been doing uh, I've been writing about sustainability, mostly in the realms of like beauty and fashion and some lifestyle. And I've been doing TV segments around that as well for um, almost like three and a half, four years. And I found that after every TV segment, people would write me on my website and be like, oh, this is great. Now I know where I can find or how I can find a cruelty-free lipstick. Or now I know that I need to be bringing my own, you know, container to the coffee shop um, because that actually makes a difference. But what else can I do? What other little things can I do? And it, it just kind of after building up a body of work like that and getting a lot of feedback from viewers and readers, I thought, gosh, you know, it would be pretty cool to have a book that had a ton of tips at everyone's fingertips and wasn't judging people and instead was kind of empowering people to do just the really small things that all add up to make a big difference. So I also had looked at and was pretty uh, pretty well-versed in all of the sustainability books that were out there. And I felt like they really thoroughly covered maybe one particular rung of sustainability. So maybe they were focused solely on zero waste, um, or maybe they were focused solely on veganism, and that was in the form of a cookbook, or maybe they were focused on capsule wardrobing or minimalism. So there were all of these wonderful kind of niche parts of sustainability, but I feel like all of those roll up to having a more sustainable lifestyle. So I didn't really feel like there were many books out there that covered kind of the universe of sustainable habits and kind of schools of thought around sustainability. So I wanted also to have a book that felt comprehensive and that it covered or included all of those approaches into kind of one nice package um, and then allowed people to pick and choose what it was that they might want to do. And I also wanted something that was well-researched and pretty transparent about the research out there. Um, that shows that you know what contributes to climate change, what actually helps the situation, and I found that books that were really well researched were also, understandably so, pretty depressing. So I wanted something that felt fun and warm and inclusive, um, and didn't feel like drudgery or depressing uh, medium when you were reading it. So that's that's what I set out to do when I when I first thought like about two and a half years ago. Hey, maybe I should write a book. And how did your book's format and or premise change after the 2016 election? Oh, it changed so much. So I um, had secured a literary agent in, I think it was December of oof, maybe 2016 or 2015. And together we had originally formulated a proposal and actually shopped it out to publishers. And it was primarily a book about stylish vegan living. Um, with, of course, like lots of eco-friendliness rolled in there, but it was definitely more of a kind of vegan-focused book. And the reception from publishers was good around that, but it wasn't, um, they still felt it was pretty niche, and they also felt like it wasn't quite the time, uh, right timing for readers to be interested in something that was so niche and also to many people, as you well know, uh, the term vegan can be kind of polarizing. It has a lot of stigmas attached to it and expectations. And for many people in the mainstream, it feels just like really daunting. So we kind of tabled that proposal and took a little bit of a break 
And then the election happened and my agent and I both were, she's in New York and I'm in Chicago. We were both feeling significant amounts of despair, like many people were. And uh, she had messaged me and she said, you know what, I think the time is really right for us to revisit the proposal and call out, like really tease out the the eco-friendly pieces of it. And I was completely in agreement. And so for a few months, I reworked the proposal to just be more of like a, not a Bible, but really a, a guidebook to living more sustainably, no matter where you are in that journey or where you want to be or how much money you have or where you live or what you've done in the past. And um, it was amazing. It was, I think, attributed both to the momentum after the election. And also, I think it was just that we had retooled the book concept to be much more appropriate or inviting for a variety of different readers. Um, and the reception from publishers was really, really good. So um, after I chose a publisher that had come to bid on the book idea, I turned the book around in really short order. Like I wrote the book in probably about three weeks, the first manuscript. And then, uh, of course, many months of editing back and forth with the publisher and proofreaders and, you know, illustrators and designers and all of the wonderful people who made the book possible um, but yeah, for most of the time, it takes about like two years to bring a book to life. And we took less than a year to do it. We actually probably took from like August of 2017 to end of June 2019 or 2018 is when it came out. Wow, that is very impressive. Because I wanted it to be out like before I wanted it to be out and helpful now, you know, like when people are feeling so defeated and hopeless about the political leadership that we have and how they view the environment. I wanted people to feel empowered that they there are plenty of things that they can be doing now to help. Absolutely. And you say in your book that we should start by giving a shit at home because American households account for 80% of total countrywide energy consumption. Uh, so let's start there. Like, What is the easiest and by easiest, I mean most affordable and accessible change that somebody can implement in their home that makes a tangible difference. Well, I think that there are so many. So in the book, I also talk about how we just have a lot of stuff. We have so many possessions. And because of that, Americans are now spending more time than ever looking for things, cleaning things, selling and buying things, and also paying for external storage outside of their homes. So, you know, the new year is coming. And one of the things that I feel like everybody has a little more energy to do when we're embarking on a fresh new year is to declutter and minimize their space. And I really do believe that minimalism in whatever iteration feels right for people. I'm not saying you have to live an aesthetic life and you can't have nice things or you can't have a collection that you love. But a lot of us would probably admit that we have way, way, way more stuff than we need. Um, so I think that that's a good place to start is looking at the way you live, looking at your possessions and really getting kind of ruthless around, does this bring me joy? Does this make me money? Is this functional? Do I have duplicates of them? Do I actually need these things? And then finding ways to ethically offload those, whether it's selling it, donating it, doing a swap with your friends, um, because that not only saves you time and money and can actually make you money, but it also saves on the extra space that many, many Americans more than ever before have um, spent significant amount of money 
keeping so that they can just hold on to possessions they never use. I think I said it in the book, we have more storage spaces in the United States or storage like companies in the United States than there are like Starbucks. <laughs> and I think McDonald's combined. So it's actually quite a bit of places that that demand obviously is created by us because we have so many things. So I think that's an easy place to start. It doesn't cost you any money. You don't have to run out and buy new things. It's just really looking critically at how you live and the possessions you surround yourself with and really determining what do I use day to day? What makes my life easier and better? And then from there, purging what you don't need and finding a good ethical outlet um, by which you can unload those. Um, there are many, many other things people can do that are pretty small. Everything from if you're talking about resource consumption, turning your water heater down from the traditional 140 degrees that it's usually set at to 120 degrees, um, washing in cold water, hand washing things, minimizing the amount that you wash stuff. All of that saves a lot of water and also energy switching to eco-friendly light bulbs. These are all kind of like basic things that people might already know, but so few of us actually do. And they do make a difference once you create a habit. I also talk about um, really understanding your municipal recycling system, both the, the wonderful things about it and the limitations so that you are recycling right for your area, because many areas are just so recycling centers are so overwhelmed. Um, and it's usually because people are not recycling things correctly. So there's a step-by-step -step chart in there by which you can figure out like, what does my municipality actually recycle and accept and what won't they accept so that then you can find alternative ways to repurpose or reuse or recycle items that your city or county can't handle. And then in-house composting too, whatever that looks like for you. I have a service where I get a bucket dropped off to me every two weeks. I fill it up with my um, compost and somebody comes and picks it up and then it becomes compost for local uh, farmers. And I, that works really well for living in a small urban apartment. Other people may have other options at their disposal that are easier, but that certainly cuts down on the amount of trash you create, which is important both because we know that a significant amount of trash that goes to landfills is actually organic material in the form of food waste. And also because many municipalities um, are starting to charge people for having or using way too many trash cans. So, I mean, you compost too. It's like it cuts down on your what you actually send to the landfill pretty significantly. And I think it's actually, once you get the hang of it, very, very easy to do. Yes, and recycling and composting are actually next on my list of topics I want to talk about. But real quick, what you said about minimizing and asking yourself, does this item bring me joy or does it make me money? That is so applicable. Like I live in a van and I'll still look around me and be like, I have too much stuff. Like I haven't touched this in three months. I haven't used it. And so I, I really do think no matter what your lifestyle is, you can definitely look around and using Using the standards of does this bring me joy or does this make me money is a wonderful way to really evaluate your belongings and decide what remains in your life and what should leave and definitely getting rid of it ethically, not just throwing it away, tossing it in the dumpster, but like you said, doing some sort of swap or, or I think last resort would be, you know, donating and then uh, landfill, but definitely doing a swap or, you know, listing it on Craigslist or on Facebook Marketplace. So. Absolutely. Oh, you're 100% true. And I think people who are like, 
I used to be somebody, I've always been a little bit of kind of a natural minimalist, but I was someone who had an enormous wardrobe and an enormous collection of beauty products, for instance, right? And I've actually found I'm happier, I'm less stressed when I'm in a space that's really only filled with things that I've selected and kept by that rubric of these things bring me joy, like a painting might not have a function, but the like an applied function, but if it makes me feel good and makes my home feel like my home, then it's worth keeping. Um, but having things that just bring you joy, that are functional, that do help you make money, and that you've really kind of ruthlessly like strategized, do I want to keep this in my life? That is, I think, also just really good for your emotional and your mental state. Yes, absolutely. I grew up in a very, very cluttered home and it always just stressed me out so much. And so since living on my own these last, I don't want to think about how many years, um, <laughs> these last however many years, I've, years. I've been a natural middle. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've been a natural minimalist and I am so much happier with, with less items because the items that I have, I want them. They, they aren't just there because yeah. they're there. They're there because I want them to be there. They're there because they have meaning or value to me. So yes, definitely an important um, thought process to have when you're trying to minimize. Now back to recycling. What are some of the common misconceptions around recycling? Oh gosh. Well, quite a few. I think the biggest misconception, the biggest thing that when I tell people this, and even when I was told this many years ago, that like blew my mind is that the soft kind of scrunchable plastic containers that we have, I don't even, wouldn't even call them containers, um, but like bagged salads and chip bags and things like that, that those are not able to be recycled uh, by, by municipalities, but generally like ever, like a chip bag, for instance, is a mixture of foils and metals and plastic. So there's really no recourse for actually recycling those. And then these kind of plastic bags for produce, we see them all the time everywhere we go, you know, like three peppers bagged up in sort of a, a cellophane type of bag. Uh, that cellophane bag cannot be recycled by your you know, local recycling system usually, but it can't be recycled by your local recycling system. So that's one big thing. People often think like, well, it's plastic and plastic is recyclable. And it's like, no, not that type. So that kind of shook me. Um, I also know that there are a few areas, but they're kind of anomalies where you can actually recycle like Ziploc bags and grocery bags, for instance, but not often. And usually even the in-store receptacles that will accept those. I've heard from people who work at stores that they do not actually send those to recycling. So the best possible thing to do, obviously, is to avoid using these items as much as possible. So, um, you know, I, have, I like you, I advocate shopping in bulk as much as possible from the bulk bins and shopping unpackaged and shopping local, whatever you can do to avoid some of these really difficult to recycle items. Um, other things that I think are kind of surprising, you know, like the, the kind of college frat guy in all of us wants to like crush cans before we <laughs> recycle them. But actually, if you crush the cans, it's more difficult for the sorter to get them. So oftentimes the crushed cans, because they're smaller, will find their way on the floor and then into trash. So it's, I think, really good just to remember that there are quite a few things that we actually have developed as habits, but they can kind of harm the way that modern recycling actually works. 
Well, I did not know that about the aluminum cans, actually. Um, and then with the Ziploc. Yeah, the same goes for any kind of paper that's smaller than a post-it. It can't be recycled because it misses the sorter. So I usually compost those. Wow. And I know with the Ziploc bags, if you are trying to recycle those, like, you know, Walmart or whatever your local grocery store is, probably has that bin right inside the front doors. You do have to take off the the Ziploc part of it, like cut that off right. before actually trying to recycle the plastic bag part of it. And then with the chip wrappers, right. yeah, all that that small type of plastic that's that's made of not just plastic mixed materials, um, like you said, isn't recyclable. The only company I know of that can that has the ability to um, deconstruct all of that and recycle it is TerraCycle, which is a fantastic, amazing company doing right. such incredible, innovative things. But you have to pay them to recycle it for you. So I think it's easier to just not by the right chips. and so many people yeah or just yeah you're you're absolutely correct I mean listen all of us have been there where we're like on a road trip and we're like holy smokes I really just need something oh, and I've been in like rural Oklahoma yes. where there is no bulk anything and also there are no vegan options like anywhere and so it can be we've all fallen prey to uh I don't want to say messing up because that already sounds really prohibitive but we've all been there you know um, so it's nice to know that there's like TerraCycle and companies out there that actually can handle that. But with the, just the sheer volume that we consume those items, um, one company alone isn't able to to handle that. So it's best just to avoid them as much as possible. I agree with you. We ain't going to be eating chips anytime soon together. <laughs> yeah, and I, it does require time, but you can always make your own chips or for you know an even healthier option get a secondhand dehydrator from the thrift store and like make your own apple and banana chips kind of thing now the average american wastes approximately 1160 pounds of food every year with a good portion of that occurring during the holidays um how can people reduce their food waste what's your tips for that um well composting is definitely one of them because i i just feel like once you start composting you start to see how much you actually do waste food and what the sources of those food wastes are. So it's kind of like data collecting almost. When I started composting, I was shocked by the sheer volume of food that I was wasting. And I thought at the time I was still a pretty good, like a damn good environmentalist. And then I saw the things that I was wasting and I was like, oh my gosh, what? Um, I have some recipes in the book that utilize things that are traditionally considered food waste, like almond meal and vegetable scraps. Um, so I definitely recommend people make their own vegetable stock from scraps. And I definitely recommend that people keep the almond pulp from their almond milk, dry it out in the freezer and use it in smoothies for extra fiber or use it in baking for extra fiber. So there are things like that that we can do. I also think it starts with how we shop. Um, that's kind of the root of everything. So from the beginning, I think Americans are very um, focused on doing a big shop during the week, like we or every two weeks, we do an enormous grocery shop, you know, we go to Costco or Sam's Club, and we just buy a ton of stuff. And really, if you go to other countries, people are largely shopping just for like the next few days. And it, that has been shown to reduce food waste simply because, well, one, you're shopping in season, but also you're shopping for things you absolutely need that you will be using and you have the intention of using in the next few days. So I think that only doing a few smaller shops is really helpful. 
in reducing food waste on the front end. And another thing I suggest in the book that actually I learned just from me being, you know, kind of a struggling early adult living in Boston with no car is that I walk to get my groceries. Um, so I will actually, I don't bring home anything I can't carry on my person. And having that very physical reminder <laughs> of like carrying an enormous carton of almond milk or whatever it is, like on your back or on your shoulder through the snow for 20 minutes, like you will remember the food that you have bought. So um, I think that that's kind of not feasible for everybody and in their life, but I do think doing smaller shops and buying only what you need is extremely helpful in cutting down on food waste. And then, you know, reducing the urge to go or wrangling the urge to constantly eat out. Um, we've kind of lost the art of having a home cooked meal and we're seeing that people are becoming less healthy because of it. They feel less emotionally connected to the food that they eat and the people that they share time with. So, um, you know, making it a practice to actually make food at home, making a breakfast, packing your lunch, making dinner when you come home. These, these types of things obviously are very helpful. And then once you get your food home from shopping, prepping it however you need to so that you are set up for success for the week to actually freaking eat it. You know, like it's, I love pineapple, for instance. Uh, I, probably am unlikely to eat that pineapple if I don't pretty soon after I get it in my house, if it's ripe, like actually cut it up. And the same goes for watermelon. The same goes for squash. You know, it's just, it makes sense to prep whatever you can so that during a busy week that we all have, you're actually ready to rock and roll and use that food and make it into a meal or eat it as opposed to letting it get to the point where it's so bad, you actually have to throw it out. Definitely. So your book has probably at least like a thousand, like there were so many incredible eco tips. Um, and obviously everybody needs to read it because there were so many things that I had never, never even thought of that hadn't even occurred to me. Um, and there's two in particular that I want to touch on. Um, the first being junk mail. So junk mail is actually when you, when you stop and think about it, like it's a whole bunch of trash coming into your life that you just, you pick it up from the mailbox and you put it right in the trash can and don't even really think about it. It's just a part of your regular routine. Um, what are your tips for reducing junk mail? Um, let's see. Well, the first, I mean, is to opt for paperless billing. And that's something that you'd think now in our day and age is pretty automatic, that companies will automatically do that. But I can tell you just from my own experience with banks or with like my retirement accounts and things like that, I actually had to go on the site and opt in to receive paperless communications. So that I think is like the first step. And then there are quite a few, and unfortunately they're not evergreen. Um, some of these sites go in and out of business, but there are quite a few things, uh, places you can go to like catalogchoice.org, um, dmachoice.org, opt-out pre-screen, where you can actually request to get off of mailing lists. Some will take you off of mailing lists for phone books. Some will take you off of mailing lists for catalogs. I also think it's important that if you do shop online ever, that you really make sure to unsubscribe from mailing lists. Um, the second that you shop online from pretty much any company, they automatically will opt you into receiving both electronic and paper communications from them. 
Um, so maybe that's also a good, a good, uh, argument for not buying as much stuff. The less you buy, actually, the less you'll see these promotions like in your mailbox. Um, I would also say simplifying your subscriptions is important. So, I mean, I write for paper magazines and I do certainly love to get a paper magazine every now and then. Um, but many of us get snookered into having like, no, not you. Cause you're living in a van. You're literally like living in a moving house. So it's probably difficult for these places to find you. Um, but a lot of us will maybe like find ourselves subscribing to like four magazines because we got like a promotion for it. And I actually think like what we need less of in our lives is noise. And sometimes those can really feel like noise that just crowd up your thinking and your day. So I have like one magazine that I subscribe to and I read the heck out of it. And then I give it to a friend who might want to read it, or I leave it on an airplane for people to read it, or I donate it to homeless shelters who are always looking for reading materials. So it gets quite a bit of use before it ever even remotely hits the recycling bin. Um, Another thing that people don't realize is that when we give philanthropically to organizations and we give small donations, for instance, um, because those donations aren't necessarily large enough for that uh, organization to recoup their costs, some, some organizations, not all, will actually sell your information to different mailing lists. So Charity Navigator actually recommends giving larger donations to just one or two charitable organizations as opposed to small donations to many because that minimizes the likelihood that you're going to be put on mailing or your information is going to be sold to different mailing lists. Um, another thing I actually like to remind people is that senior citizens are way, way disproportionately impacted by junk mail. They, it's almost to the point where it's extremely predatory. They're receiving almost double the amount of junk mail pieces that um, someone who's younger would. So if you're at all tech savvy, you know, part of giving a shit is not just being good to the environment and to animals, but also to other people. And so if you're at all tech savvy and you have a neighbor where you see your neighbors getting like a ton of junk mail, it's a good thing to go over there and just say, hey, can I like remove you some, from some of these lists or do you want to be receiving this stuff? Because actually junk mail is a really good um, indicator that your information is being sold, that your information is being exposed, and actually that you could be at risk for different kinds of identity theft and fraud as well, which we know seniors are also more disproportionately vulnerable to. So I do recommend like help out somebody who's not tech savvy or help out somebody who's more senior who could really use it because them getting a ton of junk mail could also mean that um, they're going to get snookered in some other way as well. Yes, great idea. And especially donating magazines to homeless shelters as well. I hadn't thought of that one. I do. I just learned yesterday that emails actually have a carbon footprint themselves, just um, mainly on the fact of having to store them on your email provider's servers. So not just unsubscribing and removing yourself from physical paper junk mail subscriptions, but also removing yourself from those online email newsletters and deleting the, you know, unnecessary emails from your inbox. Um, It's small, but as we know, like every little bit counts, every little bit does make a difference. It adds up. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. It's, I think it's also just a, it's a philosophy of like economy of investment. So we've gotten so much into just having a ton of stuff and also communicating a ton of stuff. So clearing out the noise in your inbox is, is really helpful as well. You're a hundred percent correct with that. Now, the second 
um, surprising thing from your book that I wanted to talk about was mattresses. So we spend 25% of our life asleep. Um, so the mattress that we're sleeping on is pretty important. How do we, A, extend the life of our current mattress and B, properly dispose of it at the end of its lifetime? And I guess C, um, how do we buy, how do we know how to buy a more eco mattress in the future when that um, purchasing time comes? Sure. Well, to extend the life of your current mattress, I mean, listen, any place that you're laying horizontal for a good chunk of your life, you're going to shed dead skin cells. Um, and dust mites are, doesn't matter how clean you are, dust mites are going to be in your pillows and your mattress. So um, unless you have a special fabric or a special kind of fabrication that repels them or won't let them um, get in there. But if you're like most people who have traditional mattresses and pillows, uh, good things to extend the life of it are to flip it, obviously, which we hear quite a bit. Another thing too is as mattresses start to sag, it's always a good idea just to get a, a board and put it actually underneath the mattress that helps to stabilize it so that if you have like, for instance, a traditional inner spring mattress, it won't sink as much. Vacuuming your mattress, which is something that my grandmother used to do and I thought it was crazy looking, actually does help to extend the life of your mattress because it does help to get rid of common allergens and dust mites that can make your mattress unbearable and also erode it down over time. Um, when it is, well, also, how do you, when it's time to get rid of your mattress, um, don't put it out in the alley or on the stoop or whatever. Don't expect like your city to come and collect it. Some cities will, but most cities do not have any kind of mattress recycling programs. There are actually programs that will um, ethically recycle your mattress. So for instance, if you go and buy a new mattress, certain retailers, I've heard like mattress firm, for instance, will, when they deliver your new mattress, will actually take your old mattress and take it to a mattress recycling center for you at no cost, um, which is great. But there, if you don't have that option, um, there are also services that for a small fee will come and take your mattress and will recycle all of the different components or as many of the different components as possible from it. So that does usually require a small fee, um, but it's certainly better than having a mattress sit in a landfill. I think anybody who starts to care about the environment and sees the enormity of the problem that we're looking at and their contribution to that problem, which we all are um, doing and contributing to, I think they start to see like, whoa, actually like paying 25 bucks or paying 60 bucks to have this be you know, dealt with in a more sustainable way is certainly better than me just being just another dickhead who's throwing his mattress in the landfill. Um, I hope I can say dickhead on your podcast. <laughs> My book is called Give a Shit, so I'm trying to wrangle the swears. But um, the other thing, too, is if you're looking for a new mattress, and I detail this a lot more in the book, um, so I won't necessarily go into everything you should look at. Buying a mattress secondhand from Craigslist ain't a bad idea, actually. Um, there are plenty of ways that you can sanitize fabrics. Um, and I actually got a great mattress that was like a memory foam vegan like um, mattress off of Craigslist that was pretty much never used. It was in someone's guest bedroom and legit they maybe had some people sleeping on it like once or twice. So I think like scour your options for secondhand first. Um, and then look into all of these kind of ethical options that are actually popping up, or I should say more ethical options. Um, if you even, I, when I was in the market for a new mattress, cause I'd had mine for 
wait for it, 17 years. That's so gross. <laughs> That's like the na- I just think of all that time me and that mattress spent together. But it was a really, really long time that I'd had that mattress. When I was in the market for something new, I simply, you know, posted on Facebook and asked people if they had any great experiences with more eco-friendly mattress companies that hopefully had vegan options. And I discovered so many brands that I didn't even know existed that were totally in the realm of affordability that I got to research and understand who they were as a company, what their commitments were, were they truly sustainable, were they using materials that were actually either FSC certified or organic or fair trade. And so it was really um, a good experience to kind of crowdsource that purchase. Now, tell me about your little black book. The little black book is um, an online component to the physical book. And it's really just a collection of brands and companies that I have um, experience with that I really believe in, that I've researched that I think are very much aligned with kind of the give a shit lifestyle. And it changes all the time. That's why I didn't want to actually put these brands in like a glossary or an index in the book because I wanted it to feel very evergreen. I wanted somebody, you know, to maybe pick up the book seven years from now, be able to go to the little black book on my website and find, you know, clothing companies or beauty product companies or whatever they're looking for that are already kind of like give a shit approved. And it's always changing, you know, and I'm always adding new things to it. So it's it's really just a free resource extension of the book for people who are like, okay, I want to implement these tips in the book, but I may need to get something new. Um, and I wanted to explore what that might be. So it's really just that. And it's also not like a paid affiliate thing either. I just include the brands that I really believe in. That's awesome. So Ashley, what is next for you? Ah, that's such a favorite question. <laughs> um, I'm not really sure. I think this might be the first time in my life where I'm answering something like that. Um, and I'm actually okay with it. So I have been for the past few years really striving to you know, do TV segments, to write different pieces, to get the book out, to get this message out. And, you know, a book isn't like a song or, um, or a meal. It's not something that people encounter for like a few seconds or a few minutes and they can form an opinion of it. A book is something that requires quite a bit of investment on the part of the reader. Um, and so the gestation period of like a book um, is usually like two years. In fact, I always like to talk about an, another book that was published by my publisher. Have you read You Are a Badass? No, I haven't. That book. So it's pretty popular, but it was released like many, 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 many years ago. And for three years, it kind of hung out like dormant. Um, People didn't know about it. People weren't reading it. And then something happened. Magically, the universe put it in the right hands or something. And it became like a, a total sensation. People were like aware of it, reading it. It's on all the bestseller lists, sold over a million copies. Um, And that happened many years after the book was published. So I'm not necessarily saying that's going to happen with this book. And I'm also not saying that like, since the book's been published, it's been dormant and nothing's been happening. The response has been awesome. But I think for the first time in my life, I'm actually just really enjoying basking in, seeing how the book is impacting people, hopefully positively, and seeing who it's touching And I'm not necessarily like, I'm really present with it. I'm not necessarily like looking forward, like, Ooh, I'm going to write another one. Or, you know, my hope is that this book is comprehensive enough that I don't have to write another one. 
But I also, you know, I still love doing television. I still think it's a really great medium for reaching people. And um, my goal is to just keep doing as many mainstream national TV segments as possible until maybe hopefully someday sustainability is something that is so of interest to a mainstream audience that, you know, maybe I'm working for, you know, like a Good Morning America or Today Show as their correspondent on sustainability. That would be incredible. And I think that's something, I think that's kind of where our world is going, hopefully. Oh, I hope so. That would be amazing. That'd be fun. You can be on my show. Yes, <laughs> we can, yes. We can just drink coffee and hang out, hang out, shoot the breeze. That would be amazing. <laughs> oh my goodness. So Ashley, where can people go to learn more about you and check out your book? Oh, you sweet thing, you. Well, people can go to my website, which is my name, Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-E, Piper, P-I-P-E-R.com. Um, there's where the little black book resides. Um, it's also where you can submit any questions or comments you have. You can also find me on Instagram. My handle's my name. Pretty easy there, and I'm pretty responsive there. Um, and then I write for different outlets. So lately I've been writing quite a bit for BuzzFeed um and glamour so yeah you can find me at those places too this episode of the hippie haven podcast is brought to you by bestowed essentials my line of ethical and eco-friendly home goods handmade in our new store in rapid city south dakota our products are certified vegan and cruelty free made with all natural ingredients and no palm oil with plastic free packaging and shipping we are a low-waste company, sending less than 10 pounds of trash to the landfill on a monthly basis, and a third of our electricity comes from renewable solar and wind sources. We donate 10% of every order placed on our website to provide clean drinking water where it's needed most around the globe. Shop now at bestowedessentials.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Hippie Haven podcast. Your support means the world to me. If you found value in today's episode, I encourage you to become a patron of the podcast. For just $5 a month, you can help me continue the educational work I'm doing here with all of my wonderful guests, and in return, I'll pick up a bag of trash in your honor. Visit patreon.com forward slash a hippie in a van to support this podcast. I also have an exclusive community for the podcast over on Facebook, so if you want to connect with me and other like-minded people, just type Hippie Haven in the Facebook search bar and join our group. Thanks again, and stay tuned every Wednesday for the next episode.